uh, we decided that we would do a series on bread, hungry for breakthrough. It is our heart's desire and a prayer, and in fact, potentially our trust that God will break through spiritually, relationally, and even in our community during 2017. And, uh, and just before I go on today, I just want to say, if you uh, don't usually come every week, or if you choose the weeks that you're coming, can I uh, implore you? The next three weeks are going to be amazing three weeks. We're going to look at the book of Esther. It's going to bless your soul. It's going to bless your family. If you're going through some challenges or if you're uh, just trying to see God when God seems to be absent, I'm going to encourage you to come the next three weeks. It's going to blow your mind away. Our creative team have put some incredible things together. Uh, be here. You will absolutely be blessed. But today it's my pleasure to finish uh, this series called uh, Bread Hungry for Breakthrough. Because every single one of us, regardless whether we're Christians, exploring Christianity, or just uh, even if you're here visiting with us today, there is undoubtedly times in your life where you experience some setbacks, or you receive a, 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 a where you experience a situation where you where you're confronted with a dead end. And he's saying, it is beyond my capacity to do anything about it. Can I receive a supernatural intervention from God that would break through, that would take me to the next level, that would give me up to something that I couldn't do in my own capacities? And that's what we're praying over us as a church this year. And uh, as I mentioned with, uh, uh, to you last week, one of the most profound people that wrote about fasting in the recent time, his name is Jenkins Franklin, and he's experienced some ridiculous blessings from God as he and his church began a 21-day fast every single year in January. And God has done some miraculous things in their, uh, in their church, whether through healing or, um, you know, looking after uh, directions or relationships or financial uh, situations. And, and he wrote this. He said, you soon realize that fasting is an overlooked secret source of power. And he asked, could we be missing our greatest breakthroughs because we failed to fast? That's why we as a church want to encourage every single one of us to attempt to fast during these 17 days. And there is diverse way of fa ways of fasting. For some of us who are, uh, potentially have fasted before, maybe you uh, take on board an absolute fast where you don't actually eat or drink for a period of time. Maximum, that's obviously three days or uh, as a maximum, but some people do it you know, from breakfast to lunch or from breakfast to uh, dinner, whatever you're accustomed to. Uh, for some of us, we will look at fasting uh, some days or the 17 days, a normal fast which is predominantly just fluids, whether that's uh, uh, you know, water, juices, and soups, and the like. For others, it's a partial fast, and they do what we call the Daniel fast, grains, fruits, and vegetable, whether that's for several days or for the entire 17 days. Uh, many of us may do a specific fast on a particular thing that bring, brings you pleasure. Uh, and, uh, and, and whilst I understand that some of us can't fast of food, food is literally the way that fasting is being considered throughout the scripture. But if you can't fast of food for a medical reason, you can fast of something else that bring, brings you pleasure. 
Uh, some of us may uh, want to do it in a, in a small group or in a connect group that will do a congregational type of fast, where there is fasting chain where you fast this day and I fast the following day and so on, where we encourage and egg each other on. The truth is this. Only fasting uh, is one of the three pillars of worship that gets ignored in the church quite often. If you look at the book of Matthew uh, and sh- chapter 6 where the Lord Jesus' uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount is recorded, he communicates to his people that worship has got three pillars, uh, prayer, fasting, and giving. Prayers, fasting, and giving. And he always says in every single one of those sections, he says, when you pray or when you fast or when you give. Notice he never says if you pray or if you fast or if you give. However, somehow in our Western culture, we have decided to potentially undermine the idea of fasting. And we all understand the importance of prayer. We all understand the importance of giving sacrificially to God out of the goodness of uh, His provision unto us. But some of us may have not been exposed to the idea of fasting. Fasting is a complicated thing where you have to actually suffer uh, by being hungry. And many of you would say, why do I need to do that? Let me tell you that in our midst, there is a culture of prayer and fasting that makes me absolutely thrilled with what God is doing in here in this church. Over the past year and a half or so, I've seen diverse groups of people fasting for all different types, all different reasons, uh, seeking God with desperation. I've seen a group of young people who are fasting for God's direction over their life. Some of them fasted for a whole week on liquids only. I've seen a, a person that I've been mentoring who is just about to graduate uh, from, uh, before he graduated from uni, he decided to go on a week fast so that God can give him direction for the next step of his uh, life and his career. And I tell you what, after, after the week of fast, he was offered two options, not one option of what might God want him to do in 2017. I've seen couples before dating, they go on a fast, a long fast, just to get a confirmation whether God is approving of this relationship or not. And it just makes me excited. I've seen a couple, a young married couple who are going through some tough times who went on a prolonged period of fasting. I've seen a couple who fasted entire 2016 once a week for their, for their extended family who were experiencing some problems. And on a New Year's uh, Eve, uh, I, 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 I had the pleasure of communicating with them and they said, we won't believe it. We just came from a gathering with the family and God brought a breakthrough. It was absolutely amazing. It took all year of fasting, not fasting for themselves, but fasting for somebody else. I've seen some of our youth leaders in here and young adult leaders who are praying for somebody else in their circle of influence or going through diverse challenges. In fact, last Wednesday, I've, I've seen a group of uh, uh, Spark Youth leaders and even some youth who are gathering there in the afternoon at about 5 o'clock having uh, some beautiful food. I don't know what they, they cooked, but it smelled really nice because they were fasting for the past three days prior to that, seeking God for the new season as Sparks, the youth ministry that we have here, begins 
uh, this coming Friday. I've seen people fast, parents fast for children. Even in this place, I've seen a, 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 a couple of, uh, of families who are fasting for children's health. I have seen God come through over and over again in my personal life and in a life of people in whichever church that I've been, been part of because of prayer and fasting. And I would fully agree that fasting, when we miss it, we probably do miss our greatest breakthroughs. I've been exposed to fasting, obviously, from a very young age. But the one fast that was most profound in my life is when my dad was, take, was taken to prison in 1989, and it would have been for life. And there was a pastor in Sydney um, who, who, who asked the church to fast for three days. And in Egypt, there is no such thing as justice. If you're thrown in prison, you are guilty until proven innocent. And I tell you what, on the fourth day of dad's imprisonment that should have been for life, the president, the president established a decree to get my dad out of prison. Fasting does work. Fasting creates an environment for God to reach down to earth and shake our environment. I recall in, in, in 2005 or 2006, we had a fast at our, at our church that, um, uh, that we were leading in, in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And it was prior to Christmas. And, and, and I had a feeling and, and, and a desire to say, let's fast for 15 days that God might bring about 15 people that don't know Jesus in this Christmas period. And we prepared and we had a uh, more like a congregational fast where people signed up for different uh, days within those 15 days to fast. And, and we all went on some sort of a liquid fast. And I was so fired up. And whilst I was fully excited about what God might do through this fast, a person came to me and said to me, Peter, what's going to happen if after these 15 days of fasting, nothing occurs and you don't find the 15 conversions that you're praying for and politely I smiled at him and say yeah thank you very much for your insight and let me pray about this but deep within my heart I'm saying you of little faith you know don't discourage me and I was full of zeal and I'm full of courage that this is God's will and, and we can fast and fasting brings a ridiculous breakthrough. It's like almost paying the price so that we can buy God's blessing. And at the end of the Christmas period, we counted and we didn't have the 15. We didn't have the seven. We didn't even have five. And I was confronted. What on earth went wrong? Why didn't this fasting work? And for a period of time, I was confused about fast. And I wonder if you can affiliate. If you too have ever been confused about the idea of fasting. Maybe you've never been exposed to the concept of fasting in the New Testament. Maybe think it was an Old Testament type of thing and, and really 
past Jesus, nobody fasted. You, you forget that Jesus actually did fast and, and promoted the idea of fasting, but you haven't been really exposed uh, to the idea of fasting. Maybe you come from a background where it's all about God's grace and, and we don't want to do fasting. Let's we complicate things and we get works and grace, you know, mixed up together. And, and you know, what, why should I suffer? You know, Jesus died on the cross. I don't really need to suffer through hunger and fasting. Maybe for some of us, you've actually fasted in the past and nothing took place. But let me propose to you that the biggest problem we have in the church today is that we don't think we need to fast. And the reason for that, in my humble opinion, comes to two separate words that I'm going to propose to you. One, some of us, we have desires for things, and others of us are desperate for things. And you can... Figure out in your own life things that you are desire, uh, that you desire, and things that you're desperate for. And stuff that you desire, you say, "Oh, that would be nice to have." Whilst the things that you're desperate for, you say, "I need to have that. I really do. I'm passionate about that. I'll do anything for that." You know, for somebody in year ten, might be praying for uh, you know passing the exam at the end of that will be nice. You know, to do a good to, to have a good mark. But somebody in year twelve, they desperate to have a good mark, right? And maybe if you have a friendship that's uh, uh, you know an associate that's having a little bit of a conflict, you 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 have a desire that that would be uh, uh, resolved and 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 there will be a healthy harmonious relationship but if you have the same tension with your wife or with your husband you're desperate for that to actually be resolved if you've got the flu you you, you have a desire to get better but if you or a loved one is terminally ill you're desperate for 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 that person to get better we know the difference between desire and desperation. And I wonder, what are you desperate for? If I ask you this moment, what are you desperate for? Because you will figure out the difference between a desire and desperation based on prayer and fast. If you desire something, you may pray for it. You may pray for it, you know, uh, spasmodically, or may you pray for it consistently. But when you're desperate, people who are desperate for something, those youth leaders who are desperate for God to move in their groups, they fast. They pay the price, not just pray the price. Those people who are desperate for something, they go to God and say, I have nobody else and I have nothing else but come to you in dependence. Because friends, throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, when people wanted God to do something so desperately, they, they were willing to pay the price. And what are you willing to pay the price In an environment, in a Western environment where everything is at our fingertips, may I suggest that sometimes we literally aren't desperate for anything. 
Because at the end of the day, you've got that little plastic thing that you plug into an ATM and bang, money comes out. When you don't have food at home, you've got lots of friends that you can call upon. You're not desperate. If one car at home is broken, you've got another one in the garage. You're not desperate. If God doesn't turn up in your workplace, you've got other strategies and coaches to help you out. You're not desperate. If God doesn't turn up for a worship service, we've got the lights and the music. We're fine. We're not desperate. If God doesn't turn up in your neighborhood, you're fine. You can can get along anyway. We're not desperate. I wonder whether... Honestly and sincerely, we're desperate for God. Because when people are desperate, they fast. And I don't mean just because you're desperate and you fast, you get what you want. In fact, I want to share with you a story that will help us realize what type of desperation would make the difference in our lives and in our communities. I want to share with you a, a, a particular situation that occurred in, in, in a book known as the book of Isaiah. It's a, a, one of the books of the Bibles uh, written by a prophet known in the former prophets. Uh, and that's one of the big books of the scripture. And he's known as one of the prince of the prophets. His book is 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 got the motif of of judgment and salvation. It's, a, it's an incredible book. Some scholars divide it into two halves and, or others divide it in three halves. I'm going to go to that third half. <clears throat> Some say this is a prophetic image that Isaiah gave, even though he wasn't uh, necessarily around that time for people that were coming back from an exile. Others said that, uh, you know, uh, a school of prophets reinterpreted his second book or, or the second part of Isaiah uh, to the people who are returning from exile. They've been enslaved. They've been in captivity. And here they come asking God and fasting desperately for God's intervention. And I'm just going to read you several verses from Isaiah chapter 58. And I'm hoping that God will inspire us through this chapter to figure out how we can be desperate in a way that brings God's blessing over your life. Isaiah 58 and starting from verse 1, it says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. This is my favorite verse in the Bible, by the way. That's why the sound desk are there just to put the sound down when they feel like I'm shouting too much. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. And the first thing that I want to mention to you here, there is a a distinction between rebellion and sins. Rebellion here is a singular and it speaks later on of people forsaking God. They're revolting away from God. The sins is the way they are behaving, the way they're living. And and because this is like a poem, uh, it it goes in little phrases, if you like. So if you are not following exactly one after the other, you need to uh, wait a little bit to the second 
uh, uh, segment so you figure out what they really mean. It says, for day after day, and the word day in Hebrew is, sig is significant in this entire poem here. It says, day after day, they seek me out. <clears throat> they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. Here is telling us about the rebellion of God's people, that they pretend to seek God. They pretend to want to be near to God. And he says, that's the rebellion. They really honestly have forsaken me. They're not really after me. They're not really a righteous group of people from the inside out. It's righteousness from the outside. It's an external thing. It says, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They want God to do the right thing for them. And seem, again, the word seem, comes over and over, seem eager for God to come near them. That's the rebellion. Externally, they seem interested in God. But are they? And I don't know if that confronts you, but it confronts me. I don't know, deep inside your heart, you would say you're honestly seeking after God or whether you, you appear to be seem to be as if you are drawing near to God. Why, they ask me for just decision and seem eager for God to come near. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? It's a legitimate question. They're saying, God, how could we do the right thing by you and you seem oblivious to what we're doing? How could we fast and humble ourselves, yet you do nothing in return? How come you're unattentive to our seeking after you, for our longing to get near to you, for, for becoming a people who are seeking your just and you're seeking your wisdom and seeking your direction? And look what God says to them. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You do as you please. That's really the heart of the sins. If rebellion is about forsaking God, sins in plural are summed up in this, we do what we please. Friends, it's not abnormal for us human beings to want to seek our own pleasure. It doesn't mean it has to be sinful. It doesn't mean pleasure that means you're doing all the wrong thing and you're going sleeping around and you're going, you know, smoking and drug, you know, taking drugs and all those things that we, we, you know, we say, this is really seeking after your own sensual pleasures or worldly pleasures. I don't think it only refers to that. I believe this concept of seeking what we please or seeking our pleasure, it's putting you as the number Anything in life where you put yourself as the number one, this is seeking after your own pleasure. And that can describe itself in a relational way. It can describe itself in an, in, in an emotive way. It can describe itself in your goals and your dreams. And it even can, it, 
it reflect itself in the way you walk with God. <clears throat> that in our fasting, we're asking God to do what we want rather than what He wants. Yes, we're fasting, we're suffering, we're paying the price, but we're paying the price for what we're going to get in return. And in this concept, these people were exploiting their workers. Why would you exploit your worker? Because you're number one. What can I get out of that person? Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. Why would you do that? People don't quarrel and strife out of nothing. James in the New Testament tells us that people quarrel and strive because of the sinful desires. They're seeking their own fulfillment of their own appetite. They want what they want, not what other people want. And if somebody's going to stand in my way, I'm going to break them in order to get what I want. You're number one. And in a striking each other with a wicked fist. Whoever stands in my way, I'll bring him down so I can be the one standing. And now God is confronting them with judgment. It says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. It says, there is no way that you could live for the number one and expect me to be your vending machine. That's literally what God is saying to them. Don't expect to fast and to mock me and trick me to do what you want. Seeking your own pleasure, you know what that does? That blocks the connection between heaven and earth. If all you're doing is praying and fasting for your own pleasure, you will not get it. That's why James again in the New Testament, the brother of Jesus, it says, he says to the church, the New Testament church, he says, you do not receive because you do not ask. He says, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss to spend on your own pleasures. Friends, Christianity is not a new version of vending machine. God is not our cosmic vending machine. I don't come to God so He can do my will on earth. I don't come to God and fast so He can do whatever I want to do relationally, personally, emotionally, or even in ministry. And friends, I am ashamed to say that those 15 days I declared for fasting back in 2005 or 2006, they were coming out of a motive that was amiss. And whilst I wanted God to be honored, there was a motive within me that I struggle with up till today. And I don't know about you, but after every godly motive, there is a little thing within me that has something for my own pleasure in it. God cannot be mocked. And God is saying, heaven is like brass. If what you're praying and fasting for is your number one priority, you. You'll get nothing in return. And then he tries to instruct and correct. In verse 5 it says, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? 
Are they acceptable to the Lord? And the word acceptable here refers often in the scripture to sacrifice. He's saying, do you think by fasting like that you're sacrificing? Do you think your external practices are real sacrifice acceptable to God? How can you be sacrificing if what you're asking for is your own pleasure? How could you be sacrificing? It's an oxymoron concept. I want to sacrifice myself so that I can receive what I want. That's not a sacrifice, friends. And here the scripture puts sacrifice as a replacement of the idea of fasting. Fasting is not hunger so you can get what you want. It's letting go of what you want. It's saying no to me so I can have, I can say yes to God. He replaces the idea of fasting with a lifelong practice of sacrifice. And then he begins to continue to instruct them about how they can have a fast that's acceptable. He says, um, Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh? And he summarizes it in verse 10 when he says, Verse 9 and 10, it says, If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then, he always says, if and then. He's about to tell us the blessing, but this is so critical. If you've fallen asleep, I ask you to please just give me your attention for a couple of minutes. This is fasting. And the first thing that he does, remember I told you the idea of yom or, or the day, day after day is a significant in the entire poem. The idea of day, they had a day designated for fasting. Yet in this section from verse 6 to 12, God removes the idea of day altogether. There is no mention of the word day. What he was trying to say, I want to replace a day with a lifestyle. I don't want you to fast for a day. I want you to live a fasting mode, a fasting life, a mode of action, which is a mode of sacrificial living. He says, if you would do that, if you would undo the yoke, and if you would share yourself, not just your bread, if you don't just become a person that gives bread to others, but you become bread that spends yourself on behalf of others, I will give you what you need and more. And this thing is critical for us to know. The fasting mode of living is a way of living the God life, not the you life. You know, God was saying prophetically to the people that when you were captive, when, when, when the land was in, in siege, the slaves were released. But as soon as, as things gotten a little bit different, people claimed their slaves again and saying, you know, you're worse than the oppressors. God removes oppression. Gods have freed you from captivity even in the days of Egypt from slavery, you either be like the oppressors, 
like human people or you can be like your God who liberates. You can be like your oppressors who spend you for their own purposes and for their own pleasure or you can be like your God who spends himself. He is known to be the bread of life. He spends himself on behalf of others. And I believe with every fiber of my being that if we live this lifestyle of fasting, we will become the people that are known not like the world, but we will reveal a liberating and a life-giving God. And that's what God is saying. The day you and I become the type of people who reveal our God, who liberate and who give to others out of our own sacrificial living being, that's when we're going to receive all the blessings that are relevant to fasting. So let me tell you this, friends. When we are inviting you to fast during the month of February, we're not inviting you to buy God's blessing. We're not inviting you to pressure God and twist his arms so he can give you what you want. It is a lifestyle of sacrifice. You say, I no longer want to live for myself and my purposes and my dreams and my hopes. This turns the Christianity that we've packaged in a little marketing thing where you come to Jesus and you get what you want. This turns Christianity back to the reality of what Christianity was meant to be. That's why it says that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Friends, Christianity in the West needs to be reimagined. We need to reimagine Christianity from being the, the type of, of a genie that, that you pray and fast and God does what you, what you want him to do to the type of Christianity that absolutely goes underneath God's will and says, your will done on earth as it is in heaven and I am your tool and your instrument. When we live that type of life, I am telling you revival is at the door. If we live no longer for ourselves, no longer for our dreams, no longer for our hopes, if we live the Jesus life who came to die so that we may live the life that he lived, I tell you revival is at the door. Revival in your own family, revival in your own life, revival in our community. If only, if only we'll be dead to ourselves and live the fasting mode of life. Fasting is only exercising the muscle of sacrifice in your life so that you could hunger for the right thing. And then God says this, if then, if then, then what God? What are you going to do for those people that live that lifestyle? It says this, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say what? Please say that out with me. He will say, okay. If you recall in the beginning of that chapter, the people were saying, guess what? We've been calling for help and you're absent, God. You're not responding. You seem to be deaf. And God says, listen, if you would live that lifestyle, I'm not only going to answer you, I will come to you like light. 
And not only will I come to you like light, I will remain with you. I will say when you call me, it's like I'm here right next to you. Here I am. I'm with you. I will guide you. I'll bring healing. It's like it's what's written in the scripture that the sun will rise. The sun of righteousness will rise and healing in its wings. It says to me that God will reverse the mess that our sin created. That he will reverse that separation that we had with God. He says, I will be with you once again. Friends, if you want God's nearness, if you want light out of your darkness, if you want God to be right near to you when you need him most, you need to live that sacrificial lifestyle. There is no way out. You can do somersault spiritually. You will get nothing. You cannot maneuver God because you've been a Christian for a long time. You cannot maneuver God because you serve him. You can't maneuver God because you trick people around you you are living a lie if you're not going to live a life that is exactly exactly a self-sacrificial life that Jesus has died to give you and he says this incredible thing it says then the Lord then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday okay I don't know much about seasons and days and nights. I'm not a scientific person, but I've never seen a night turn into a noonday. Right? Night turns into dawn and into day. It doesn't turn into noonday. It doesn't come from absolute darkness to absolute brilliance. It doesn't come this contraction of time. But God says that I can swiftly change your condition. Just because your life with God it seems like he's so absent, just because you don't feel his nearness, you don't have to do loops and, and, and jump through hoops to get God back on board with you. God says that light will shine as soon as you turn to that lifestyle of putting God ahead of you. The first thing that I want to let you know is that if we fast as a lifestyle, Darkness will turn into light. The second metaphor that the Lord gives us in verse 11, it says, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. The Lord will guide you. You're not going to be lost. It says that he will satisfy your needs. You're not going to be ever in want. Just because you, you say, I'm not going to live for myself, God doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm going to abuse you now. God is not user, abuser. He says, I will satisfy your every need. I'm your shepherd. You shall not want. I'm going to come alongside you. You will never, ever, ever, regardless of what everybody else experiences, if you live a selfless life, you will never be unsatisfied. It says in a sun-scorched land that when there is drought, when there is not a lot of things to, to help resources, to help people around, I will satisfy you. You do not need to rely on external resources. That's what God is saying. And look at this ridiculous thing that he says. He says that he will turn a sun-scorched land into a well-watered garden. Look at the transformation that God does in our life. When there's drought, when a sun-scorched land is so dry, it's about to be dead. 
And God says, no, 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 no. Don't look at your current condition. Internally or externally, I will bring about a well-watered garden out of your current dryness and deadness. What is a well-watered garden? A well-watered garden is always lush. It's always vibrant. It's, there is vitality. There is life. There is fruitfulness. And friends, we cannot become well-watered. We cannot become fruitful. We cannot experience growth. We cannot experience vitality in our walk with God unless we accomplish in our own mind the resolution that we will be a people who live selflessly for God. That's when God turns your dryness and your deadness into life. Are you? Eager, are you hungry for a real, honest, thriving relationship with God? You gotta lead a selfless life. And the final metaphor that I want to share with you today it says, Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, you will raise up the age old foundations, you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. He's saying to them prophetically, as you come back from exile, the land that has been ruined, <clears throat> the way of living with God that's been ruined because you're living a self, selfish life, I will turn that around. And you who have been a destruction and the reason of your living with experienced destruction, you yourself will be the restorer. <laughs> How amazing is God? It's like when Abraham lied and, and, and the king of, of, of that area uh, was, was struck with, his family was struck with illness. God says to Abraham, go and pray for them and I'll heal that family. It's like, serious? He's the problem. You use the problem to be the solution. You lose the hopeless person to be the blessing. And God is saying to them, you're the problem. Your sin caused all this ruin. Your sin is the thing that caused my people to turn away and the judgment of God to come through the Babylonian and the Assyrian and the land has been ruined and nobody can walk in the streets because no safety and there is no dwelling around because everybody is petrified. But I'm going to put you in a place of safety. I'm going to call you the repairer. I'm going to give you a new identity rather than being the, the person that destroys to be the person that builds and rebuilds and rebuilds foundation that lasts for a long time. That you will become an eternal excellence, a joy for many generations. If you live the selfless life, you who have been a ruin and created ruin will become a restorer. That's what God is saying. You do not have to ever give up on God. You do not have to, even if you created problems for yourself and for other people, you will be the one that restores life with God. Not just for you, not just for the people around you, but amazingly for the community. You will build streets where people dwell with God. You will bring back the ancient walk with Jesus, the walk that really is authentic. The walk that's honestly is built on the foundation of the scripture, not the marketing like Christianity, not the Christianity that consumes and consumes and just want God to give and give and give. Not the type of Christianity that if God doesn't give us what we want, we'll say, okay, see you later. And instead of destruction, you will build a legacy for God. It says not only that you will be a rebuilder. Look at this awesome scripture in verse 12. It says your people will rebuild. 
your people. That means the people that you influence, the people that are around you, the people that you know, not just you, but your influence will extend beyond you and you will make a difference in the community. I don't know about you. That's what I hope for us as a church, that we ourselves wouldn't be the solution only, but the people around us will be solution for many generations, that the name of Jesus once again will be exalted for generations to come. Because I don't know about you, but if you hear the news, if you watch the news, there is mess out in the world, and friends, that cannot be fixed by social uh, uh, resolutions. That cannot be fixed by legal laws and implementation that can only be fixed by the name of Jesus in a community. And if we're not interested in seeing God changing the community, we are going to be in trouble for generations to come because it never gets better. Sin always derails a community. Sin crushes the people. Sin blinds and binds and grinds. Sin never, ever, ever gives people a good go at life. We're desperate. I don't know about you, but I personally am desperate for God to move in our community. And look how he finishes the poem. And verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable. And if you honor it by not doing your own way. You get the message. He keeps repeating it. You're not going to do it your own way. You're not going to do it your own way. You're not going to live as you please. You're not going to live for yourself. You're not doing as you please or speaking idle words. He says, then, 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 then. That's the promise, friends. Every promise has a premise. Every promise has a condition. It says, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights. You're not going to be drained. You're not going to be defeated. You're going to be the head and not the tail. And to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. You see how he started with judgment to the house of Jacob? He now completes it with a blessing to the house of Jacob. And regardless where you are, God wants to take your judgment and turn it around into a blessing. But there is the middle core where you say, I'm no longer going to live for me and my pleasures, and my hopes, and my dreams, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to be hungry to live for God. Friends, let me finish off by saying this. When, when our pleasure, we're desperate for God's pleasure, rather than our own pleasure, we'll experience real pleasure. When we're desperate for God's pleasure over our own pleasures, we experience real pleasure. You experience joy that you've never seen before. And I am desperate for you, and I'm desperate for me. I am desperate for our families, and I'm desperate for my family. I am desperate for our church, and I'm desperate for our community, that we will see real joy in God, that we will not be run down, troubled, turning against each other, uh, sticking the finger and blaming and striking and quarreling and strifing. I am no longer interested to, to be amused and troubled by the minute details of life. I want to do the right thing by God. I want to find God my pleasure I want to live God's pleasure and when I live for God's pleasure he becomes my pleasure and your pleasure and you experience real joy in the Lord 
Transformation. Transformation is not far from you. It's not far from me. Only, only if you hunger for God's pleasure. So would you join me? Would you join me in the months of February to say to God, we want to hunger for you and your pleasure? We want to be even the pioneers or the alone people in our environment, in our workplace, in our families, in our churches, in our community. The people that are dumb enough to say we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. Would you honestly and sincerely say, I will no longer dream and care and strive and work hard for my own pleasure, but pleasures, but for the God's pleasure, so that I experience real joy and real pleasure in God and that He will transform my life. Oh my goodness, what would it take for a group of people, 10, 15, 20 people that will make a decision that from there on, from 2017, we will renew our vows before God. Maybe you lived like that a while ago. But what would it take again to renew our vows with God and say we're no longer going to live for ourselves? And friends, even if you've never been a Christian before, we don't want to trick you. We don't want to tell you that if, if you come to God, you get what you want. And we want to tell you, you come to Jesus, you're going to get the best life ever. But that life, you need to die to your little itsy bitsy life that's causing you all the problems. And you're going to open yourself up for the best life ever. Where you live to liberate and give life to others around you. To represent the God that cares that world that is so hungry Father I pray in the name of Jesus that you would convict our hearts right now Father I pray in the name of Jesus that you would encourage us to hunger Lord I personally beg you that you would deposit hunger in my soul I confess I confess that more often than not, I desire you, but I'm not desperate for you. Forgive me. Forgive me, God. Forgive me. Forgive me. I so often desire you. I so rarely desperate for you. God, everything I have, it's because of you. Yet sometimes I love the things that you give. Then the giver himself, would you forgive me? Forgive me, God. I'm not a good example. I ask during this month, Lord, of fasting, that you would help me personally to be so ridiculously desperate. Desperate for you, Dad. That I'm mad about you. That I'm willing to pay the price, not just pray the price. Bring breakthrough, Lord. I trust you. I trust you. Light instead of darkness. Life instead of dryness and legacy instead of destruction. We love you. We honor you. We trust you. Greater things are yet to come, my God. And the community will know that something has happened at Narrow Warren because people are no longer going to live for themselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. We love you and honor you in the name of Jesus. God's people said amen.
Thank you so much for being here. Let's be upstanding for our last song.